welcome back to another edition of the Little Big Med Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today we've got Dr. Joe Grubenhoff with us, who is an assistant professor of pediatric emergency medicine at the University of Colorado and the associate medical director for clinical effectiveness at Children's Hospital Colorado. In addition, he has published a number of papers on pediatric concussions, persistence of symptoms, and return to play in the setting of youth sports concussions. And I wanted to have him here today to talk a little bit about what the role of the ER physician is in returning to play and evaluation of concussion. Of note, this is not a lengthy discussion on head CT rules or how to rule out significant injury. Those have been discussed ad nauseum elsewhere. This is mostly the kid who takes a bonk on the head and knocks themselves out, shows up in your emergency room, and the parents have a lot of questions about how long are these symptoms gonna last and when can they return to play safely. And I start the discussion asking Joe about the existing legislation on return to play and what's required state by state. Joe, can you give us an idea of where the legislation sits and how we got to where it is? Are there laws in every state? And what does that mean for us in the ER? Sure. So Washington State was the first state to pass concussion legislation. I believe it was back in 2008 or nine. It was called the Leistat Law. And since then, all 50 states have enacted legislation. The legislation varies pretty significantly from state to state in terms of what population it covers, what types of activities covered, and what the requirements are for physicians. What's really interesting too is that it took only five years to get all 50 states on board with youth concussion legislation. In comparison, it took well over a decade for all 50 states to have seatbelt laws in place. So there's been a lot of anxiety on the part of parents and patient safety advocates to get this legislation enacted, but it's not entirely clear what the benefit of that is. One concrete consequence of it has been that we've seen increased emergency department visits for parents who are concerned about their children having had a concussion. This has been published. Some states have shown their increase in visit rates going anywhere from about 1% of ER visits up to about 4%. Our local experience here is that we've had about 40% relative increase in concussion visits when you compare the two years prior to the four years after youth concussion legislation was enacted. It amounts to a change from 1% of all ER and urgent care visits to 1.4%. Yeah, which is a substantial chunk when you're talking about a, an ER as big as ours. And I don't know about any of the other EM physicians, but at least anecdotally, I think we feel that. And I certainly see kids who have been evaluated by a sports medicine physician on the sideline and told that they don't need any emergency room visit. And then the parents will bring them anyway because of some of this fear. So that's a good thing to know. And oftentimes you'll see one of two things. Either the parents are worried about a more serious injury. They've heard all these bad things about concussion. Or two, they've been told on the sideline that they're not cleared to go back to play and they aren't happy with that answer, and so they come into the emergency department seeking written clearance for return to play. It's really important to know that no emergency physician should be clearing a kid from a concussion to return to sports. That's not consistent with international consensus guidelines on acute concussion management. That's a good thing to talk about right now, and I, that's a rule that I always play by, is that it, I'm seeing you once the generally the night of the incident, and it's not my job to return you back to play. So are there any good guidelines out there, either nationally or internationally, for return to 
play and recommendations for rest versus activity? Sure. So the first thing to remember, even before getting into the conversation about return to activity, is that you are obligated based on international concussion consensus guidelines to have a, a child return to being asymptomatic before you start any of those protocols. What we know is that the trajectory of symptoms for concussion varies depending on the type of symptom. So for example, somatic symptoms, things like headache, nausea, vomiting, vision disturbances, usually peak right after the incident and then slowly taper off. However, cognitive symptoms, difficulty concentrating or paying attention, tend to start out relatively mild and peak at about three days and then start to taper off. So you may not be seeing the full complement of symptoms initially in the emergency department visit. You also may not have any idea as to what the effect on the child's sleep is going to be relative to their concussion or what challenges like school and cognitive activity are going to do to their symptoms. The best rule of thumb is to refer a child to their primary care physician for reevaluation in 48 to 72 hours and allow them to make the determination as to whether or not they've become asymptomatic at rest. Once a child is asymptomatic at rest, then you can begin a return to play protocol. The International Conference on Concussion and Sport Group has met most recently in 2016 in Berlin and have continued to support a graduated return to play, which is approximately five steps after you're asymptomatic. That's easily accessible free on the web. If you just search for the Berlin guidelines or the Zurich guidelines, you can find that information. Return to school is a little bit more questionable. I haven't seen any robust recommendations for how that happens. Locally, our pediatric concussion program, which is run by sports medicine physicians, rehab physicians, and neuropsychologists, suggests that children shouldn't be kept out of school. They should have a modified school schedule in terms of workload, homework load, testing timing. For example, kids shouldn't be taking standardized tests or major final exams or advanced placement tests when they're still acutely symptomatic. And I feel like some of that's a little different than maybe even just when I I was training in school and in residency where what we were taught was to tell kids to, you know, absolute strict rest, no no screens, no return back to school until you were absolutely asymptomatic or at least for a couple of days. So is that has that paradigm changed? That paradigm's changed significantly. There's been quite a few studies in the last three to four years that have demonstrated that strict rest, no reading, no writing, no television, computer games, texting, talking on the phone, etc., what some people would call cocoon therapy, actually perpetuates symptoms and that kids who are allowed some relative rest for one to two days, and by relative I mean not exacerbating their symptoms, followed by an active recovery and rehabilitation tend to do better and have a faster resolution of their symptoms than the kids who are put in that cocoon therapy and told you can't do anything for a week. Two important things to remember about kids, especially if they're involved in sports, is that they need that socialization as part of their normal development, and so keeping them away from that socialization will tend to promote symptoms like depression and fatigue and anxiety that they might not otherwise have. Furthermore, 
you don't want kids taking on the sick role and assuming that because they've been restricted, they actually are more injured than they really are. So you have to be conscientious of how the child's development plays into their experience or their concussion symptoms. I'd love that as a point. And I feel like we deal with that unofficially a lot. I'm not aware of, of specific studies that have looked at how you present an illness or, or what media or legislation exists around it and how that plays into the parent and, and kids reporting of their illness. But it's something that we deal with a lot where kids are particularly prone to psychosomatic symptoms. And so that access to that sick role is a big deal. Yeah. And in fact, we recently published a study here from the University of Colorado that demonstrated that kids who score high on scales of somatization tendencies are more likely to have persistent symptoms at 30 days than their counterparts who score in the normal range on those types of tests. So what do you see as the role for the emergency medicine physician in this? We see it a lot. You know, a kid comes in, it's in the evening after a game, they got knocked out, they are feeling fine now, and the parents kind of want to know what's the evaluation, what do you need to do in the EED, and, and where does it go from there? Sure, well, that's a good question. So the thing, two things to always remember is that there's a pretty high association between head injuries and neck injuries. I think it's fairly obvious for us as emergency physicians that we want to exclude any more life-threatening head injuries, whether that's intracranial hemorrhage or malignant cerebral edema, but also we want to make sure that there's no signs of a serious neck injury. The first thing to do is a good history and a thorough physical exam, including a focused neurologic exam. The most likely thing that you're going to see on an abnormal neurologic exam in a child with concussion is ataxia, usually elicited by tandem gait. And that's an important thing to make sure you elicit and can use to point out to the parents, look, if he's unbalanced and you let him go back, even if his head feels better and he's not throwing up, your child is more likely to get injured because of the balance issues. And that tends to resonate well with parents. It's also important to remember that not every kid who has a head injury needs a CT scan. The rates nationally are falling, but they're still, depending on the type of emergency department, vary from about 30 to 50% of kids who show up in an ER with blunt head injuries will get head CTs. That's way higher than what I would have thought. It's pretty high. It's better in tertiary care pediatric institutions, but we can do something to help drive that down, which is follow the PCARN head injury algorithm that helps us decide which kids need CT scans and which don't. And both in the preliminary study, as well as some validation studies that have been carried out in Australia and New Zealand, it's shown that that algorithm functions quite well. It has a pretty high sensitivity. The other thing that is important to recognize is that subsequent PCARN studies, as well as some independent single center studies, have shown that observation periods before making a decision to obtain imaging can decrease the number of kids who get imaging. That observation period, even if it doesn't change much about what you're going to do, a lot of times it helps reassure the, the parent that like they're there, you're paying attention to them, but they don't need that scan. Right. And a lot of times our fellows in our emergency department will ask, well, how long do you have to watch them? There's not a lot of great data to say what the duration should be. Some people cite one study that says at six hours, you're unlikely to have any significant deterioration after that point. Certainly by 24 hours post-injury, the likelihood that you're going to have a clinically important traumatic brain injury, parenthetically meaning you're going to get intubated or be admitted or need a neurosurgical procedure or die, is really unlikely. My general strategy is that if you can demonstrate to me consistently improving mental status in terms of your alertness, your ability to answer questions and follow commands, over a period of a couple of hours, then I feel fairly confident that you don't have a more serious brain injury. You mentioned in there risk of repeat injuries. And are you talking about just recurrent head injuries or other injuries? So 
One of the big things that people have worried about in the past is something called second impact syndrome, which is a misnomer, specifically because you can get malignant cerebral edema, which is the actual pathophysiologic process after a first head injury. We certainly don't want kids to go back to playing sports or putting themselves at other risks of subsequent head injuries because we know multiple injuries back to back lead to prolonged recovery. But there's no evidence that keeping a kid out of sports will 100% prevent malignant cerebral edema from happening at a subsequent event. It's a fairly rare phenomenon and hard to really measure from an epidemiologic standpoint. But we don't want kids playing and getting re-injured while they're still symptomatic because those kids do have a longer recovery period. And separately, you mentioned that the most common neurologic symptom that they're going to have is ataxia. And if you think about sending an ataxic kid back out to sports, apart from the head injury, you're just setting them up for higher risk for orthopedic injuries. And that's something that we also see. Do you have any specific timing that you give to patients whenever they come in? I feel like that's the number one question that we get asked in somebody who's mostly asymptomatic at the time you see them, but clearly had a concussion is, when can I go back? I got to turn them in three days. What, what can I do, doc? Right. So I usually tell parents and their children that most people become asymptomatic within 48 to 72 hours. So that's a good time point to follow up with your primary care physician. If you follow a strict return to play protocol with one day per step, you're looking at being out for a minimum of one week before you're cleared to go back to full contact gameplay. The research would suggest that roughly 75 to 85% of kids have completely recovered within three weeks. So that if at three weeks a child is still complaining of concussion symptoms, that's the point to get a specialist involved because that's pretty unusual. It's important to remember that sometimes in that subset of kids, that 15% or so that's still symptomatic at a month out or, or more, some of them will be somaticizers and their symptoms will not because of their head injury, but because of how they experience injury and, and sickness in general. And there will be a subset of kids who have suboptimal effort or are feigning symptoms because of some other reason. That's a good reason at that point to get a neuropsychologist involved who can distinguish between the neurologic changes and the psychologic changes that are contributing to those symptoms that are being reported. So the role for a sports medicine or neuropsychologist or concussion-specific physician is really at a couple weeks out when they have persistent symptoms. We get asked that question a lot too is is who should I see for follow-up and I think the answer is mostly primary care doc. Yeah the primary care physicians are getting much more astute about this. For the early timing uh, follow-up with a sports medicine physician I would reserve that for kids who are elite athletes whose parents are being really aggressive about pushing them back into sports or who have had multiple concussions especially within the same season because they need the expertise and the clout of a sports medicine physician to help guide them to a safe return to play practice or to discuss in those kids with multiple head injuries in one season whether they need to retire from that sport. Are there any guidelines or recommendations for using any of the concussion specific scoring systems in the emergency department like right when you first see them? It's a great question. So some people have looked at some of the computer-based neuropsych testing and 
those are fine for distinguishing kids who have a concussion from those who don't, especially in the acute injury phases. A much cheaper solution is to use the sports concussion assessment tool, which is in its fifth version, or the SCAT-5 for short. That again has been shown in the acute phase of injury within the first few hours to three days to easily distinguish kids who are concussed versus those who are not. The tricky thing with the testing is that it's time consuming and requires a certain amount of skill to conduct or if it's computer-based testing requires equipment and an outlay of equipment. Right now there is no recommendation from a national international perspective to do any of those specific inventories whether they're computer based or pen and paper based. Probably the most useful thing for an emergency physician to do besides doing a thorough history and a focused neurologic exam is to get a good symptom inventory and there are several out there that are available. We talked a little bit earlier about one of the downsides of legislation being that it really ramps up the concern about the serious of concussions and head injuries that didn't require some sort of intervention, CT procedure. Do we have any data on benefits or improvements to those legislation? Does it reduce rates of serious head injury? So that's a really good question. There's not any data that I have seen that shows a tangible benefit in outcomes for children. We had some non-significant findings a few years ago that did demonstrate that kids who followed up with their primary care doc after their ER visit were half as likely to return to sports prematurely and were currently conducting another project to see if we got a big enough sample size to see if that is statistically significant. But that's one of the big gaps in the research on concussion is that all of these recommendations around legislation and return to play protocols and school modification don't have any scientific support to back them up. It's primarily based on expert consensus. In summary, first, do not forget to evaluate for more serious injury than concussion. In particular, neck injury gets missed in kids. Two, an observation period may help decrease the head CT rate as it gives the chance for both the physician and the parent to feel comfortable that there is a pattern of improving or at least not worsening symptoms. Third, no ER should ever be clearing a child to return to play on the day of the injury. In general, return to play recommendations are best left to the primary care doc or a sports medicine doc, and we do not believe are the realm of the emergency room as far as giving final clearance to return back to sports. Thank you so much for listening today, and thank you to Dr. Joe Grubenhoff for giving us his time. I'm Jason Woods. You can find me at jwoodsmd on Twitter. You can email littlebigmed at gmail.com. You can find us at www.littlebigmed.com. And you can find all of our podcasts under Little Big Med through the Apple Podcast app. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine.